There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. Uh, you know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. A lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F*** that. You don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's going on? Sorry for the bit of a delay of the show. The Royals, they won. They beat the White Sox. So... Actually, time well spent this time. Sometimes it hasn't always been this way. I'm Derek Johnson here for RCST. Coming up at the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to be joined by Scott Chasen of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net. We're going to talk a little NBA draft. Where is Marcus Garrett going to go? Is he going to get drafted? Some other stuff with the draft as well. That's tonight. Just kind of snuck up on us. It's at 7 Central Time, I believe, already There's a bunch of transactions, could be a bunch of trades tonight, so it's exciting. It's exciting because that, honestly, is maybe the most exciting part about the NBA, for better or worse, just the transaction process. The NBA draft, the offseason, free agency, trades being made. The sad part, kind of, is that this year was kind of the exception with the Bucs and the Suns in the finals. Most often, the team who wins the finals is the team who best positioned themselves in the offseason by accumulating the most stars, which makes the offseason very interesting. And the regular season, less interesting, but that makes tonight part of the interesting side of things. You know what else is interesting? How about the Big 12 sending a cease and desist letter to ESPN, biting the hand that feeds them? I don't know if you were aware of this story last night, but it was crazy, everything that was coming out and going on. And it is amazing that we've gotten to a point, ESPN being this small business, I shouldn't say small, but I mean, they were kind of a small cable company when they first started out at the very beginning in the 80s, continued to grow and grow and grow, eventually became ingrained in the lexicon for everybody from the sports world. 
And they've grown from that to now being somebody who is the puppeteer behind the scenes, orchestrating an entire landscape of collegiate athletics. Absolutely incredible. And last night, I don't know if it was just obtained last night or if it was sent last night, but the Big 12 and Bob Bowlesby did send a cease and desist letter to ESPN, who once again, ESPN does air all their games. This is what it said. It was addressed to to Burke Magnus, which that sounds like the most made-up name ever, the president of ESPN. Dear Burke, it has come to my direct attention that ESPN, the current business partner of the Big 12 Conference, has taken certain actions that are intended to not only harm the Big 12 Conference, but to result in financial benefits for ESPN. Setting aside ESPN's potential involvement in the recent announcement by the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma that they intend to leave the Big 12 Conference in 2025, as to which we reserve all legal rights, I am aware that ESPN has also been actively engaged in discussions with at least one other conference regarding that conference inducing additional members of the Big 12 Conference to leave the Big 12 Conference. As you know, our members have entered into contractual obligations to the Big 12 Conference under the amended and restated agreement related to the grant to the Conference of Rights television and then a bunch of just other info that goes into that that we don't need to go over. Further, as you also know, Section 20.2C of the amendment to the related agreement between the Big 12 Conference and ESPN states that ESPN will not, quote, take any actions likely to impair or that are inconsistent with rights, the rights conferences has acquired under the agreement. ESPN acknowledges the conference's rights herein are valuable, specific, and unique. ESPN's recent actions also violate, at a minimum, Section 20.2C of the telecast agreement. The Big 12 Conference demands that ESPN immediately cease and desist all actions that may harm the conference and its members, and that it not communicate with the Big 12 Conference's existing members or any other NCAA conference regarding the Big 12 Conference members, possible conference realignment, or potential financial incentives or outcomes related to possible conference realignment. So basically saying there, stop talking to our teams about, hey, if you go to this conference, this is how much you'd make, or stop brokering deals between other conferences to come to you. It's basically tampering, essentially, is what's going on with ESPN being the middleman, but being that ESPN owns the rights agreements and all the media agreements and controls the contracts for how much schools and conferences are getting paid, they're the puppeteer behind, essentially, realignment right now. And Dan Skipper, who was the former ESPN president, came on with uh, Dan Lebitard's show yesterday or two days ago, and they asked him, like, how much of the whole conference realignment thing that really got going a decade ago and is continuing now is your fault. And he just responded. He said, I plead the fifth ESPN is the silent puppeteer behind the show that is orchestrating this whole thing. And it's incredible when you think about how much money is at stake, how many people's jobs are at stake, their livelihood is at stake. And they're just, it's a game to them. And I mean, it's not just a game to them. There is money to them involved as well, because at the end of the day, they're looking out for their bottom line. It's just crazy. So they go on to say in this, uh, to finish it off, the Big 12 Conference reserves and will enforce all of its rights under the grant of rights agreement and the telecast agreement to the full extent of the law and will not allow its business to be interfered with by business partners or others. Please provide the Big 12 Conference with your written assurances that such actions will immediately cease and desist by noon central time on July 29th, 2021. 
So that was today. And then there's the famous Bob Bullsby signature that looks like a little kid was just scribbling up and down for 10 straight letters or so forth. Um, Bob Bullsby also told the AP afterwards, I have absolute certainty they, meaning ESPN, have been involved in manipulating other conferences to go after our members. Bullsby also told the AP that Texas and Oklahoma have been working on this for months, which there's been many reports that have leaked that to be true. I don't know if they can prove it. I'm sure there'd be ways of finding so. But they've been taking part in Big 12 strategy meetings where propriety information was being shared, meaning that with Texas and Oklahoma knowing they were going to leave already for months on end, they've still been contributing in Big 12 strategy meetings for what long-term they want to do or what strategies they could have that would raise the value of the conference, and now they know those strategies, how to kind of counteract them, so forth. Uh, Bullsby's final quote to the AP and Ralph DeRusso, this whole thing has been a complete articulation of deception. So, as mentioned, ESPN was expected to respond by today, and they did just that. This comes from ESPN. Dear Bob, this responds to your letter dated July 28, 2021. The accusations you made are entirely without merit. Apart from a single vague allegation that ESPN has been, quote, actively engaged in discussions with at least one another unnamed conference, which ESPN disputes, your letter consists entirely of unsubstantiated speculation and legal conclusions. To be clear, ESPN has engaged in no wrongful conduct, and thus there is nothing to, quote, cease and desist. We trust this will put the matter to rest. ESPN reserves all rights and remedies in connection with this matter. Sincerely, sincerely Burke Magnus. Now, this is interesting because it's almost a game of chicken. Bob Bowlesby mentioned that they have very clear evidence that ESPN violated this agreement, which I would assume is either at least one university from the Big 12 or multiple universities in the Big 12 that were approached by ESPN in some way or another. I'm assuming it's some sort of email or typed out proof that they were able to show Bob Bowlesby and say, hey, ESPN is doing this to us. They're doing this to other conference members as well. And it has to be somebody who obviously has interest in maintaining in the Big 12. I don't know. I don't know why my first thought was like, oh, it's probably Baylor. I don't I don't know if there's any reason to that. Um, they've just been the school that, like, oh, we're going to use lawyers to sue Texas for leaving the Big 12 and all that stuff. Or we, like, tried to sue Texas A&M for leaving the Big 12. So I don't know why. That was just a, my first reaction. But honestly, it really it really doesn't matter. But one of those schools would have done that to Bob Bowlesby, and he would have the proof. But at the same point in time, after, let's say, a school gave that to Bob Bowlesby and was like, hey, here's this email ESPN sent us, Bob Bowlesby can't now just post that publicly and be like, hey, look, this is an email you gave to Baylor. Because then that throws Baylor under the rug. And then Baylor is screwed in realignment because ESPN is going to tell every conference, don't pick up Baylor. So you can't do that. But at the same point in time, he has to say, like, we have that evidence. I just can't show it to you for that reason. And because ESPN probably knows they can't show it, given that it would screw the school over and throw them under the bus, ESPN 
like in that letter, is just going to be able to say, well, prove it. Like, you don't have any proof for it because they know they can't release it publicly. Now, maybe if this thing goes to court in some way, then that gets released behind closed doors, and then that's a different situation. But obviously, they're not going to admit fault because even if they know it to be true, they know the Big 12 has evidence that they won't publicly release to protect that school who kind of snitched the identity. So here's kind of to summarize what all occurred with that letter, because that was a lot of legal speak or a lot of basic conversation. ESPN was essentially conspiring with the American Athletic Conference to take three to five Big 12 teams and join them to their conference. And by doing so, at that point, with Texas and Oklahoma already leaving for the SEC, if you take five more teams out, there's only three teams left. Big 12 is done. It's falling apart. And not only do they end up with a better AAC, which that doesn't really matter as much. Most importantly, the Big 12 implodes and ESPN isn't responsible for the final four years of a deal worth about $1 billion for the Big 12. So they get off the hook for a billion dollars. That is their incentive to wanting the Big 12 to fall apart, which is why they tell teams go to the AAC and they try to broker that situation between the two of them. Therefore, you'd assume ESPN would approach the American Athletic Conference and say, and this is just me kind of guessing, just like reading between the lines here. I have no idea. Wouldn't you go to the AC and say, hey, how would you guys like your media rights? Instead of what you're currently getting paid, we're paying you as part of this contract to have your games on ESPN. We're giving you guys, each school's getting about $7 million. How would you like for that number to be doubled? How would you like it for every con- every member of your conference to be paid $15 million a year from our contract? And they see Perks Series up and goes, yes, obviously. How do we do that? Well, all we need from you is to take on three to five Big 12 teams. It'll add to the value of your league. We'll be able to pay you more. And we'll even pay you above market value because some of the schools you bring on might not move the needle enough to really make it worth us giving you 15 or $20 million a year. But we'll pay you above market value because you're doing us a solid and helping us save a billion dollars by imploding the Big 12. All you got to do, just add three to five of those teams. And that would be a drop in the bucket of us having to pay the AAC teams all an extra 5 to 10 to $15 million a year in a better conference at that point, that'd be a drop in the bucket to what they would have to pay for the final four years of the Big 12, which is already a sinking ship now, and you wouldn't have to worry about the buyouts with Texas and Oklahoma. It's basically an organized coup put on by the by ESPN. Then, Dennis Dodd reported this last night, a little bit after, in the aftermath, The Big 12 now believes that the American Athletic Conference is attempting to take all eight remaining members. So this was the response, basically, by them to say, okay, well, three to five is not enough. The report's out because this is interesting, too. What if the American approached all eight remaining Big 12 schools 
and they said, hey, we want to take you on. But knowing full well they were only going to take three to five to begin with, but they said, why would we only approach three to five? We want to approach all eight because not all eight might end up taking the bid. And they approached all eight, but now that the report got leaked out, some of the schools would know, wait a minute, you offered that to me and you offered that to him and I talked to him and he got the offer too and you find out that everybody got the offer, you're like, this is kind of messed up. So now they they change it to saying, no, we'll take on all eight, which would be very interesting just from like a conference perspective and figuring it out and seeing what the media rights would be for the conference. Certainly it'd be less than the schools are getting paid now by the Big 12, but you wonder how much less. It's very interesting. And now, by the way, too, I've just seen some breaking news. Oklahoma and Texas have officially been given access um, to the SEC. It was a 14 nothing unanimous vote, which that's always been a running joke that every vote with the SEC is unanimous. So I'm sure Texas A&M opposed it for a while, but once they got enough votes to make it pass, they probably just said, oh, well, yeah, it's unanimous. We're all on the same page here. So they officially will be heading into the SEC. That was pretty much just dotting the I's and crossing the T's that needed to be done. But now that is official there. But if this does happen with the American trying to bring on all eight Big 12 members, it'd probably be, I would imagine, or even if even if it's just the Big 12 staying together, it's probably a short-term gain just by staying in the Big 12. But I'd imagine that is a huge long-term mess. And ESPN is going to try to orchestrate getting out of this, but at the end of the day, Yes, okay, all the schools might end up with more money over the next four years by staying in the conference, but once you get out of the league, once that four years expires, then you're kind of you're kind of done for. I think the one caveat here is what happens if what happens if you can join the American Athletic Conference to lessen a buyout that would allow you to leave for a power conference should it come calling. So like for instance, right now, for KU to leave, leave the Big 12, hypothetically, let's say the Big 10 or ACC came calling and said, hey, KU, we want you to join our league. KU would be no different than Texas and Oklahoma in terms of having to pay a buyout from the Big 12. I don't know if it'd be the same amount because it's sticky with Texas having the Longhorn Network and all this stuff, but KU would have to pay a buyout right now just as the other schools would unless they waited until 2025 as well when the deal is up. So hypothetically, would it help if all these schools joined the AAC and as part of the contract, you negotiated something in there that said our buyout, instead of being, say, $70 million to leave the Big 12, it's only going to be $20 million to leave the AAC. And now we know we have stability as a backup plan. As a backup plan, we end up in the AAC, but we also know our buyout is lower in case the call does come from the Big Ten or ACC. I think that would be interesting. I don't I don't know if they can do that, but that would be something I'd be monitoring. This is also interesting from Dennis Dodd's piece on CBS Sports about this all. The Big 12 bylaws are written in such a way that if there is even one member remaining, a program can individually sue any of the entities in this discussion, the SEC, the ACC, or ESPN, which goes back to the part of even if the Big Ten or ACC came calling to the to Kansas right now, 
if Kansas left, they'd be in the same situation as OU in Texas now, where they'd have to pay a buyout. They could get sued by the member remaining in, even if seven of the eight schools from the Big 12 leave. That one school left could sue. Furthermore, in the Dennis Dodd piece, leaning on the disinterested director's clause and its bylaws, the Big 12 intends to make the migration of Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC as difficult as possible. After losing four teams in the last round of conference realignment a decade ago, those bylaws were drafted in 2012 to stand for a period of 99 years. Texas and Oklahoma were part of the group who, according to one source, wanted the longest agreement possible. And just kind of ironic now. But this is all ESPN's fault, which is kind of funny. Like I said, you look at the growth of a TV market that relied on sports to get it on the air, and they are now the villain here orchestrating this all behind closed doors. They are the Illuminati in college athletics. And here's the kicker. 2016, if you remember, the Big 12 actually had deep discussions about expansion. They put it up to a vote. I remember, I believe Texas and Oklahoma actually voted for it. I don't remember if the vote actually passed or not, but they ended up not doing it for other reasons. I honestly don't remember. But a big reason why it didn't end up happening and the Big 12 didn't expand and bring in some of these schools like Central Florida and Memphis and Cincinnati and whoever else was on the ledger, Houston, is because ESPN told the Big 12 back in 2016, none of the candidates that you're talking about bringing on would add revenue to the league per team. The amount of revenue would stay the same. You would just be adding more teams, meaning everybody would get a smaller piece of the pie. And who knows if that was actually true, if ESPN if there actually would have been more value there, but ESPN was just saying, no, we've already got you locked in contract-wise. Like, obviously, we're not going to change it. But if it was on the open market, maybe they would have got more. Who knows? But that means ESPN caused the Big 12 not to expand in 2016, which now five years later have left it more vulnerable that when conspiring with Texas and OU made this all more possible, and they went for the kill shot with the American Athletic Conference. But that seems to, at least for now, have been blocked by Bullsby in the conference. ESPN's the bad guy. But still, at the same point in time, I know some people are hopping on the bandwagon of, heck yes, Bob Bullsby, you're a warrior, we love it. It still kind of behooves Kansas to be on ESPN's side here, to not come too far out against ESPN, Because what if ESPN could help parlay a deal for KU to join the Big Ten or join the ACC? What if ESPN, if Kansas helps the Big 12 and helps Bob Bob Bowlesby fight this with ESPN, what if ESPN would hold a grudge against Kansas or some of these other schools that supported Bowlesby and the Big 12, and then later ESPN would try to screw over those schools if they held a grudge in helping them or, in this case, not helping them in realignment, not helping them with contract money. So while ESPN is the bad guy, it kind of behooves Kansas to still be buddy-buddy with ESPN here. And it's wild. This is how far ESPN has come as a company. They're literally controlling the collegiate landscape. It's messed up, yet at the same point in time, I still just can't really root for Bullsby in the Big 12 in this fight either because the best option for KU at this point is still making it into a different power conference. 
FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. NBA Draft is tonight. Let's discuss that a little more on the other side. I think my head is about to explode. Who decided to put the NBA Draft and the MLB trade deadline within 24 hours of each other? There are so many trades going on. So the first one... I guess Landry Shamit got traded. Uh, the T-Wolves made a trade with Ricky Rubio. The most interesting trade that's happened in the NBA. Kyle Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, and the Lakers' 22nd pick in the draft just got traded to Washington for Russell Westbrook, or it seems like the deal is near being done. That's pretty crazy. I actually like Russell Westbrook, that fit in L.A. Now, if they have to find two other shooters to surround those big three. If not, then it's not going to work. But I think the games that Anthony Davis and LeBron are either hurt or load management, like Russell Westbrook, is going to be big for you in those games. And then the NBA or the MLB trade deadline, like Danny Duffy getting traded to the Dodgers just now. Uh, Max Scherzer seemed to be pretty imminent to be going to the Padres, although it sounds like maybe that one's not all the way to the finish line. This is absolutely insane and it's going to continue that way with the NBA draft coming up in a couple hours here there was an interesting piece by Seth Partno in the athletic discussing how many players actually make it per year it's typically about 20 players per NBA draft and he designed he designed different tiers to players in the NBA and looked at all the classes from 2000 to 2017 and it's very interesting about 50 percent of the first overall picks ended up being franchise and core players and then picks two through five, you had somewhere around 10 to 20%. Number drops to around 5% or lower for picks the rest of the way. The top starter and high rotation players and borderline all-stars are all actually pretty spaced out, depending on where you had picks, though, unlike being in the top five and having the number one pick in the draft. And those players typically spaced out through the top 20 picks or so. I think the most interesting part is the bus potential, which is defined as regardless of draft slot, a player who does not manage to consistently reside in the top half or so of the league's players. The further you go along in the draft, the much higher that number gets, which isn't a surprise, but it's probably a case that you should always trade up from the second round. Try to get a late first round pick. Try to get into the mid first round just based on the numbers. And you probably, based on those numbers, should never trade out of the first pick because that has, without a doubt, been the highest potential of giving you that top player. Now, there's always exceptions to the rule. Perfect example, Boston made it work. They traded out of the first pick. Everybody was saying Markel Fultz. They ended up getting pick three. They took Jason Tatum. That one worked out very well for the Celtics. But I kind of like this, and I think as you approach the draft, maybe you should almost view it as, I'm just going to pick the 20 guys I like the most, 20 guys that I could see. Maybe it's not the 20 best players, but that I could see figuring out a role in the NBA. And I think that's the exercise that you should almost be doing to figure out like, oh, I just find the 20 guys you like the most, where they fit the most in the NBA. And I'm interested if one of those guys can be Marcus Garrett. Because from a role potential, he should fit in terms of a lot of times we see in the NBA, a guy can be an outstanding college player, but it's because he just gets buckets in college basketball. Once he goes to 
the pros, he's not going to be asked to do that. He's not going to be asked to be the primary ball handler. He's not going to be asked to be the primary shot maker. He's going to be asked to be a secondary, tertiary, even fourth option on the offense, play good defense, maybe get rebounds. And a lot of times that doesn't work. You think of it a lot for maybe your really good short point guard in the college game, and it just doesn't translate over. Now, Marks doesn't have to worry about that. Beyond having size of basically a shooting guard or a wing, he has versatility. He's going to give you the defense. He can be a secondary ball handler where he doesn't have to be the lead initiator. The key skill is obviously can he hit a set shot being open? He's never going to be asked to create a three and step back on somebody and hit it in the NBA. But if he can at least hit a set three-point shot when he's open at a 35% clip, He's going to play in the NBA for a long time because of the ability to play defense, because he's versatile. You don't have to worry about him getting switched on to a different player in the NBA. If you're switching on defense, he can guard whoever you need him to. So I kind of think he could end up as one of those 20 players, whether that means he gets drafted tonight, which I don't know how likely that is. I feel like it's more likely than not he's undrafted, but then gets one of those two-way contracts that we've seen be pretty popular with some KU players going undrafted. That might be a pretty good thing, and I could see it being a situation where he ends up with a team, gets a two-way contract, and when he's getting to practice with the NBA team or when he does have those days where he is up with the NBA team because on a two-way, you're basically splitting the time between the G League and the NBA. But when you're with the NBA, he's going to be guarding those guys in practice, and you bet your ass that those guys are going to be telling the coach, hey, we got to get this guy some, some floor time. I can't score on him in practice. He is the toughest guy for me to score against in these settings. We got to get him some time, coach. And I kind of think that Marcus Garrett is going to make himself at least, like I wouldn't be surprised if after his two-way contract, I believe you can be on a two-way contract for two years. I would not be surprised if Marcus Garrett gets an NBA contract after those two years of a two-way contract, which we haven't always seen. After that initial contract, like, for a guy like Wayne Selden, we haven't we didn't see him be able to get to that X mark. We'll wait and see on a guy like Devon Dotson. We didn't see it with a guy like Cliff Alexander. I think Marcus Garrett does make it on to that second kind of tier of contracts, and I think he could be one of those 20 guys just based on being able to fill a very important role in the NBA. And we always hear about wings. He's not really a wing, but defensively, you can use him like the wing. The big question is the three-point shooting, as we all know. But I'm confident in a guy like Marcus that, He'll figure it out enough that he'll at least make a good living to some extent at the beginning of his career in the NBA. Worst case, if he has to go overseas, he could be a really good overseas player. And either way, he's going to have a long basketball career in general. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Let's talk more about Marcus Garrett and the NBA draft as a whole with Scott Chasen. He's going to join us on the other side. This is RCST. 5 o'clock hour. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson in with Scott Chasen now of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net. So the NBA draft is in a couple hours, and Marcus Garrett is the lone Jayhawk in the draft, unless you're counting former guys, which we kind of did in football semi-jokingly with some of the guys, uh, like Jamar Chase and so forth. So maybe we get to count Quentin Grimes as well, and he seems to be rising up draft boards. Certainly. Do you think, Scott, that Marcus is going to end up getting drafted tonight? 
You know, Derek, that's a good question because if you look at the draft boards, and I kind of wrote this up the other day, but very few of them have Marcus Garrett as even a top 70 prospect, let alone being the top 60 that you would need to take in the NBA draft. So normally I think the answer to that would be no, and you start looking at two-way deals. But uh, I would say this. You know, usually at the back end of the first round, at least, you get all the best teams because they're the teams that had the best records. And that's not always true of the second round because of a lot of trades uh, that go on with those picks. But if you're a good team drafting late in the second round of the draft, you're typically looking for an older player who can come in and make an impact right away or someone you can stash in the G League, not worry about, and, you know, basically ignore for a few years and see if they develop. Garrett definitely falls into that first category of a guy who could be a late-round selection, late-second-round selection, who could impact the team immediately. Uh, I mean, just take the two teams, for example, that were on the court in the NBA Finals, the Suns and the Bucks. The Bucks could have used another defensive rotation wing, and in fact, they had Drew Holiday, you know, change that series when he moved over to Devin Booker. I mean, he was taking out, he took out Chris Paul for the first part of the series, then he moved over to Booker. Go to the other side of the court, the Phoenix Suns, Drew Holiday goes off in game five, I think it was, so they stick Mikhail Bridges on him, their defensive wing, and now all of a sudden he's having a hard time scoring. And you saw that throughout the playoffs in every round, you know, where different guys have you know, every team has that one guy, uh, at least most of the good teams do. And so I think there's value for, you know, a team to, to take a late round flyer on Marcus Garrett and say he can be our, you know, 10, 15 minute a game defensive stopper if that's what we need, provided you can get the offensive package to come around. Do I expect him to be taken? No, but I would say I think he has a better chance of being selected than maybe a guy like Diedrich Lawson, who is in a fairly similar position going into the draft where you thought he would probably go undrafted, but you know maybe he was good enough to be projected top 55, top 60 on draft boards. Garrett's not quite that, but I do think he could actually help an NBA team, which is an important distinction. Yeah, I, I think that the worst thing that could happen would be him getting stuck in the G League because he's not going to be a guy who's going to put up monstrous numbers. Like I remember Jay Crowder when he first went to the G League. I think he was on like the Mavericks, and he was putting up like 30, 10, and 10. That's not going to be... Marcus Garrett. So I think the best thing that could happen is if he doesn't get drafted, and we see this all the time, getting that two-way contract so that he, and obviously you would have time in the G League there, but you would still have time up at the NBA level where you know that if he's going in practice against these other guys, they're going to be telling the coaching staff like, dude, we got to get that guy on the court because he's going to defend his ass off. And on certain nights where maybe we're going to have a couple guys who are injured or who are taking uh, a break here or there with as popular as that has gotten in the NBA. Like, he's going to be a good guy who we know can go out there and we can kind of trust in that regard. And it's funny because I don't think he is going to get drafted. But also, if you ask me the question, and maybe this is easier now given that we know Devon Dotson went undrafted and that he didn't really play an NBA role last year. If you ask me the question, who has the longer, more impactful NBA career, Devon Dotson or Marcus Garrett? I would have thought Mark Devon Dotson would have got drafted last year. Don't think that's going to be the case with Marcus Garrett, but I would answer that question, Marcus Garrett. Yeah, I mean, here are three examples, and maybe it's an imperfect comparison because these guys are bigger players. But Terry Ellis and Diedrich Lawson were, at one point in their careers, inarguably better players than Marcus Garrett. You know, I know KU fans have an affection for Marcus Garrett. It is inarguable that those two players, at one point or another in their career, were better by a substantial margin than what Marcus Garrett was and what he is going into the draft. 
And yet again, at the same time, and like you're talking about, if you ask me who's going to affect an NBA team, who's going to jump to the next level and retain the properties of what made him good against the kind of uptick in competition, my money again would be on Marcus Garrett. You know, if I were a general manager and I was looking down at my roster and, you know, I was looking at the 10th guy on my team, you know, how many of those guys actually contribute beyond it's just like a young player you're hoping turns into something? When you're, uh, you know, you have a playoff team, you have a roster that's trying to win, you can't afford to waste those spots. I mean, you can look across the league, even the Lakers, you know, they took, what, THT out of uh, Taylor Horton Tucker out of Iowa State, and, like, he's getting minutes. They're developing him. Now he's involved in, like, maybe could be a trade package piece. You know, you can't afford to waste these roster spots. If you're going to keep a guy on your roster, he's got to be good enough to get minutes and in big situations. And, again, I just think for Marcus Garrett, Marcus Garrett is not going to be an NBA star, but I think whatever level of basketball you put him at, whether that's in Europe, whether that's in the NBA, whether that's in the G League, you're probably going to get similar statistical production out of him, and yet you're still going to get that same kind of trademark defense. So to your point about the G League, I think you're right. He's not going to go to the G League and average a 30-point triple-double and be leaps and bounds better. He's just going to be a terrific defender who's steady enough to do a few things offensively, you know, right-hand drives, get into the paint, maybe a better-than-advertised passer, um, decent on the glass, decently strong. Um, but I think he does that at all levels. And, again, I, I think that makes him valuable. You know, it's why I haven't ruled out the idea that he would be a second-round pick. I don't find it likely. Um, and, and I think – you know, if you were betting on it, you'd almost certainly put a ton of money down on that he goes undrafted, and maybe that he can't even get a two-way deal. Maybe it's got to be a training camp invite for him and figure it out. But at the same time, you know, just like it didn't shock me that Yudoka Azubuki got a first-round pick because he was such a freak athletically and how he developed his game and what he was able to turn into, Garrett has a few of those properties, too, that you just don't find, right? Like what Dylan Brooks did defensively and we, we all saw in the playoffs. Uh, you know, there are so many guys, Patrick Beverly on the Clippers. You could, you could just list them off. Every team has that guy. And, you know, I, I have no doubt that Marcus Garrett could be that guy, at least in short spurts to the point where he's better than the 10th man on your average NBA team. I think it's very interesting philosophically with the NBA draft. And I was talking a little about this yesterday, and I don't know if there's a right answer, but do you, do you take home run swings with your picks? Do you try to find the next Giannis, so to speak? Not that exactly, but do you keep taking swings so you can maybe one day find a guy like that? Or do you take more of the safer picks? Because there's also a case to be made. Like, a guy like Kai Jones is interesting. I mean, didn't even start a ton of games for, I don't even know if he started any games this year, for Texas. But athletically, he is off the charge, charts. And you have a bunch of guys who, you look at that through the NBA draft, just have all this potential. But then when I think about it, if you're under contract for five years, how often do those players who, hey, it's going to take five, six years for them to develop, how often do they end up developing on the team who drafted them instead of the team who didn't draft them? So I, I don't know where you stand on that, but I would definitely think for teams who maybe view it more of let's take the safe guy, at least at the very least in the second round or with our undrafted guys, Marcus Garrett should be okay in that regard. Yeah, well, I think if you look at the history of NBA teams, and especially what they do at the top of the draft, that number one pick, um, two drafts that come to mind are the Andrew Wiggins draft and the DeAndre Ayton draft, where there was a, a potential kind of wild card prospect who some people you know, felt very passionately uh, could be the number one pick. This draft kind of falls into that category, too. 
But there was also like a safer pick, and that in both cases is what the team ended up doing, right? And the Andrew Wiggins draft, people thought Joel Embiid could be the best talent in the draft. But there were question marks because of the because of his health that made it kind of a little bit more boomer bust. And so Andrew Wiggins goes one, and Embiid goes three. Same with Aiden and Luka Doncic. I think people were a little bit worried about you know it's you know a different competition level in Europe. How much of them have they seen? What's his attitude like off the court? You know X, Y, and Z. And so Aiden is that kind of safer pick. And it's funny to me that that this draft is almost perceived as the same way. You know the the people who like Cade Cunningham think he's going to be a great player, maybe maybe an all-star talent someday on the right team, but they think he's just going to be a really, really, really good player for a really, really, really long time. You don't hear many people say, Cade Cunningham is Michael Jordan. Cade Cunningham will be a three-time MVP. Cade, you, you, you just don't hear that as much. You hear, you know, he's going to be a great NBA player. He's going to be smart. He's going to, you know, lead a team and, and develop guys and all this stuff. But you hear that more when you talk about guys like, you know, for example, Jalen Green. The people who love Jalen Green will tell you he is the next Kobe Bryant. I think Mark Spears might have compared him to, like, Kobe or Tracy McGrady or someone. Like, the people who love Jalen Green, man, they love them some Jalen Green. And that extends with a few other guys in the draft. Evan Mobley is one of those guys. If you love Evan Mobley, you think he's Anthony Davis. You don't just think he's a good player. You think he's a generational big man. And so... You know, I think when you look in the history of the draft, and the Athletics just did a really cool piece on this, you see that the number one overall pick produces a great player, a good player, or at least a player so much more often than any other pick in the draft. And I think the reason why is a lot of teams will take the guy that they trust, that they think they know, this is the highest floor, this is the best player, uh, and they stick with it. And maybe that doesn't always turn into boomer bust, but you get a really, really good player who almost always turns out to be at least really, really good. So just from that perspective, I think more often than not, you take the safe pick because so many of those up-and-down picks, I mean, I'm a Phoenix Suns fan. I watched them take Dragon Bender and Marquise Chris uh, and Josh Jackson maybe even was one of them. You can see so many of these guys that just don't pan out. So I think more often than not, you take the safe ones, but you know, at the same time, if you're a franchise that wants to be bad for a few years in a row to accrue, you know, draft picks, top talent, that can be an approach you take. I saw, you know, someone say that maybe the Thunder should take Jonathan Kuminga uh, with the idea that he's not going to help winning in year one. So you take him, you're back in the lottery, you get another great pick, and then maybe you start building with that core, uh, you know, with SGA in Oklahoma City, Kuminga, and then whoever you get the next year. So I think two approaches, but if you're really high up in the draft, I think you just go for the best guy and the guy you feel the best about. I, I don't necessarily think you always jump at the boomer bust guy. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, it's probably one of those things, like many things in life, where there is no one right answer. There's many ways to, there's multiple ways to skin a cat, so to speak. And I, I just, I, I had my eyes opened a little yesterday. Cole, who was in with me yesterday, just brought up the fact that, yeah, but if you bring on a bunch of these safe guys, eventually, if you keep bringing on the safe guys, you develop into a system where, like, eventually the goal is to get one of the top five players in the NBA, essentially, because that's going to be your best shot at winning a title. Sometimes the best shot to get a top five player might just be continuing to take the home run swings, but other times the best shot at getting a top five player is continuing to get safe assets, becoming a good team, and then trading a bunch of those assets or being a likable destination that one of those top five players comes to you. So I think there's just a yeah. lot of ways to do it. 
Yeah, well, you mentioned yesterday, Derek, the Toronto Raptors as an example. I would mention today the Phoenix Suns as an example. This was a team that got Devin Booker, who was the best player available when they took him in the, I believe, the early teens, might have been 13 or so. Um, Mikhail Bridges, they took a 10, another player that they, you know, they felt good about. Aiden was a safe pick at one. Uh, they got Ricky Rubio, who was by no means an all-star, and, and acquired Kelly Oubre, same thing. You know, a good player, not great. Uh, Aaron Baines, another one. And they became just this, this decent, better building team the last year to where they went in the bubble. They went 8-0, and and then they make that trade and make that splash, and, and you go out and sign a spur. Um, I would also say this. Of, of all the teams that have the elite players, I'm talking like top three, top five guys in the league, very few, in, in fact, I'm trying to think of one, would classify that would classify as a boom or bust high draft selection. Because like Giannis is a top five player in the league, right? But he wasn't drafted in the top ten. He was a mid-round pick where you can be a little bit more aggressive and go for a guy. Um, you know, Jokic certainly was not uh, a top five selection or anywhere close to that. Uh, LeBron was obviously 1-1 one, one, and, and you know, same with Anthony Davis. They were 1-1. One, one. They were the right pick, the right selection, um, and guys you thought were going to go there. Maybe, you know, you could talk like James Harden. Maybe you could talk like, um, um, you know, I'm really uh, struggling to think of other examples of just guys, maybe Luca, that were a little bit risky, like maybe carried a little bit more of that. Um, but even at the same time, again, you know, generally we're considered to be high-floor players that, that people trusted. So, I think the boomer bust thing also applies a lot more as you go deeper or later in the draft, because if, if you're not a great team, you're picking 15 or you're a great team that has, you know, maybe a roster spot or two that you don't think you need. That's when you would make that, you know, that pick. Now at the same time, I would argue if you're truly a contending team, like I said, you don't want to waste roster spots. If you're going to waste a roster spot, that needs to be a player that's in the G League or maybe one that's going to come overseas that you don't have to get immediately to take that roster spot. Um, but at the same time, I think that's where more of the risk-taking happens, where you can go after a guy at 15, 18, 21, whatever, and say, you know, I don't care as much about wasting this pick as compared to maybe wasting pick number six, which, you know, quite frankly, most of the time, uh, you know, off the top of my head, like 90% of the time, those boomer bust picks turn out to be bad NBA players who don't contribute to winning. Talking with Scott Jason, 24-7 sports, fog.net. Do you have any opinions on this year's draft? Any takes that you'd like to fire off? Uh, that's a good one. You know, my draft takes, I feel like, are normally boring because I usually, uh, with the exception of like one year, I fell in love with Mario Hezonia, and I was convinced that that guy was going to be something <laughs> Was special. he got like the white mamba or something? Yeah, well, he just, <laughs> I saw like one dunk he did in, I think it was Europe, uh, probably, where I was like, oh no, that guy's incredible, that guy's an NBA star. <laughs> I'm usually pretty tame. I feel like I like Luca, for example, more than Aiden, but I also thought Aiden was going to be good. Uh, I think the thing I've learned is that it, it's not fun to root against guys because you think they're going to be bad, and so you're just like, you know, in a, you know, inside you, you're hoping that they're bad to validate your pick. I, I don't think that's fun, but, uh, you know, I, I really like Cade Cunningham. I would have really liked Cade Cunningham more on a team with a better infrastructure and better pieces around him. Um, I, I think that's the type of guy that you put next to a two guard that can shoot, that can handle the ball too. Uh, and then you kind of build out with shooters, high IQ players and smart players. I mean, uh, a good example, he's obviously a much, much different style and different pace than a guy like John Morant. But I think if you swapped out, you know, Cade Cunningham and John Morant, I think Cade Cunningham, just like John Morant is, would be able to elevate the pieces around him, maybe even do some more with that added three-point shooting. 
And so, uh, you know, I think he has a chance to be a really cool player, a really special player. My biggest concern slash fear is that we won't get to see it because he's on a bad Detroit team that doesn't have the pieces around him that he can make better. To me, Cade Cunningham, uh, one similarity he shares with Draymond Green is that if you stuck Draymond Green on the worst team in the league as he was on a couple years ago, he really looks pedestrian and not great, and it's hard to imagine how this guy is one of the most transformational defensive players in the history of the NBA. But if you stick him on the Warriors with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and all that, you're, you know, you're a 70-win team, and everyone talks about how invaluable this guy is. That's what I see for Cade Cunningham. I think he will change teams. He will be a great player. He will raise the level of competition wherever he goes. But at the same time, I, I hope he gets some great teammates around him because I think that's where he will truly shine uh, with his ability to elevate everyone else on the court. All right, I'm going to share mine, and I'm a little afraid because um, I have had very bad draft takes before, such as thinking that Jaleel Okafor was going to be a knockdown Hall of Famer. Um, <laughs> that didn't end up happening, obviously. Here's my take. I Okay, so I, I 100% agree with you, Kate Cunningham. I think Evan Mobley is going to end up being the best player from the draft class. I feel like we are overthinking this. It is a seven-footer with a seven-foot-four wingspan who dribbles, who is fluid in the open court, who can shoot a little bit, which I imagine is going to get even better when that's his job and that's what he's doing all day. And, yes, he's not, like, the strongest guy in the world. He'll add weight. And, oh, he's really good at blocking shots as well. I feel like there is... I, I hate making comparisons to like, oh, he's he's Anthony Davis because uh, those are so silly when it's a top 10, five player or whatever in the NBA. But I feel like there is a lot more comparisons to like an Anthony Davis type with Evan Mobley to where it's like, okay, I, I could very easily see this guy being a top 10 player in the NBA. Yeah, look, I don't hate it. And that goes back to what I was saying, right? The people who are passionate about either Evan Mobley or Jalen Green are typically more passionate. Maybe even Jalen Suggs, who is like maybe dropped to four, which is kind of crazy. Um, they, they feel more passionate than the Kate Cunningham people do, right? It, it's a lot more exciting to say he's got all these tools of an Anthony Davis, which I don't think is unfounded as compared to, you know, me saying like, I hope Kate Cunningham plays with good players because otherwise he might, you know, look pedestrian. Um, you know, those are two very different kinds of endorsements. But I think Evan Mobley definitely has a chance to be a special player. And I think he's part of why the conversation of the number one overall pick, which ultimately, according to, you know, Woj and ESPN looks like it's going to be Cade Cunningham. But I, I think that's part of why that was a conversation in the first place. Or there may have even been a little bit of discussion just because you really do have three guys in this draft, the, the three were, you know, just mentioned, that uh, people feel legitimately on each side like this could be a generational player or a very unique NBA guy. And quite frankly, you know, just the example of the last time I can, I, I think a big man was taken, number one, I guess James Wiseman, um, you know, the jury's still out on that because it's so recent and big men take time to develop. But what we just saw from DeAndre Ayton elevating the Suns to the NBA Finals, they don't go on that run if they don't have a center that can hang with the other elite centers in the league that outplayed the NBA MVP for two of the four games of a sweep. You know, they don't go on that run without what he did. You know, you think about the game against the Clippers. He went off at the game-winning dunk. Um, you know, people are afraid, I think, to draft big men nowadays in the NBA 
But I think if you find the right one, especially considering there is Jokic out there, you know, there is Embiid out there, there is Anthony Davis out there, there is DeAndre Ayton and Rudy Gobert, and you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with those guys if you want to go on a deep run. To me, that's the best argument for taking Mowgli, that you go out and say, I think he can be one of those guys. And even if he's not the best one, if he's just one of those guys, I think that's more than enough to help elevate a franchise and maybe help you win a championship someday. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, the center position in the NBA is kind of like becoming the running back position in the NFL where how much value is there between the eighth best center and the 30th best center? So just pay the minimum. But for the guys who are like Anthony Davis, DeAndre Ayton, Nikola Jokic, those guys still have a ton of value. And I think Evan Mobley might be that guy. All right, he is Scott Jason, 24-7 Sports. Fog.net, you can check out all his work. KU Football has had a bunch of recruits come in. He also has some stuff on Marcus Garrett up there as well as some plenty other uh, as well. Scott, thank you so much for the time and have a good rest of your day. Thanks for having me. All right, that's Scott Jason of 24-7 Sports. Fog.net joining us. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Well, the Royals won earlier today, beating the White Sox, and this just continues a trend for the Royals. It seems like each and every year. It's like, Hey, we have kind of an interesting start, and this year was probably even more so because they had a really good start this year, and then we fade off at some point during May, June, July, and we're out of the playoff race, but then, then everybody's talking about, oh, we got to trade all these players. We got to trade everybody at the trade deadline. Not so fast, say the Royals. They start winning every game. They've won eight of their last 10 games right now. The Kansas City Royals, still 11 games under 500. They surely won't be a buyer at the deadline. They'll still probably be a seller. They've now already dished away Danny Duffy, so I guess it's trending that way. But I think a lot of people are hoping that they are more of a big seller than just a, hey, we'll just make one move and sit tight with everybody else. But, yeah, Danny Duffy, I guess I should mention that. I mentioned it in passing earlier. Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers have acquired him in a trade. He's obviously still on the IL with a flexor strain. Expected to return. He has no trade protection, but expected to waive it as he was to go to the West Coast. He could wind up being a multi-inning reliever for the Dodgers, similar to how they used Julio Urias last season in the postseason. Or he could be a starter, but obviously a free agent this winter. Who knows? Maybe he'll come back to Kansas City. We've seen that before. As far as who's Kansas City getting back, they're going to be getting players to be named later. So the Dodgers basically gave him a list. You can choose later based on more evaluation since maybe we didn't have a minor league season last year, so it's harder to evaluate. You want more time. So here's four or five guys that we already like, and we'll pick the two we really like in a month or two. So they'll have a few months to consider the ones on the list from the Dodgers and can choose from it. So right now we don't know who they're getting. It could be a great haul. It could be an average haul. It could be a bad haul. We just have no idea. But anyway, that in a second. But this is just a trend with the Rose. They do this, and then maybe they'll fade off a little bit in August after they didn't sell enough pieces, and everybody's like, see, we told you, you should have sold. And then, come September, they get hot again, and they finish the season hot, and they finish the year, I don't know, high 60s and wins, so they don't end up with a top three pick, but they still end up with like a top five to ten pick. And then it gives you hope, because they finish the year strong. And then we get back around to March, and it's the same thing. It is a cycle. It is a never-ending cycle that will not change right now. It's a good thing. They're winning. I just, from a pessimistic view, it's very easy to look at it like that. Here's the thing, though. I, I really hope this does not 
change at all how Dayton Moore views the trade deadline. Again, they are still a seller. They're 11 games under 500. they They're in fourth place of the AL Central. But I hope he doesn't view this as, well, we should sell maybe a little, but obviously we're closer to contending next year given how we're playing right now than we'd think, so we can't give up anybody away because we are all out focused on 2022. I get it. You want to be a better team in 2022, but given how it's gone this year, are we really to expect that all of a sudden they're going to be great in 2022? Like This might not be viable till 2023 or 2024 with some of the way that the young pitchers have struggled and overall the season has gone. And Dayton Moore told Alec Lewis of The Athletic, or I don't know if he told him or it was just a press conference, but Alec Lewis tweeted this out. It's from Dayton Moore on Tuesday. Anything that we would do at the deadline, regardless of what our record is, will be focused on how to be better in 2022. So, like, if I'm over over analyzing this, no, I'll say this. If I'm under analyzing this, then I would just say, okay, no big deal. Like, obviously, he wants his team to be better next year. But there's a reason you don't hear teams or GMs of teams who are clear sellers say, yeah, our goal is just to get better for next year. Because you're not in a trade going to... The only moves you can make that are going to make you better for 2022 is getting, hypothetically, MLB talent. Like, I guess you could get a young player or a prospect who's close to being up to the majors, but that would mean you'd have to trade for somebody who's under control through next year or the year after. And guess what? Buyers are going to be more in on those guys from the selling teams than you are. So you're going to have to give up a pretty penny, which means that's not going to happen. So just because you make a trade that, like if you trade away Danny Duffy to get prospects, they might not impact you in 2022, but they might in 2024, they might in 2023, and you might not have Danny Duffy next year. Dayton Moore and the Royals just, there is this consistent trend of getting too attached with players and not being able to sell them off. And the perfect example right now is Whit Merrifield. I am a gigantic Whit Merrifield fan. But Whit Merrifield, his value is starting to drop a little. He's getting older. You look at that, the numbers, the average, the on-base percentage, the slugging percentage. It's starting to drop. I don't know. This might be the last time that you can get something for him. Maybe next year. But what happens if you see a similar drop to next year's production? And that's the type of move that would make a lot of sense. He has a year and a half under control. You can probably get a pretty good prospect or maybe a couple solid prospects for Whit Merrifield into your system. But they just don't seem willing to do that. And that, I think, is kind of a one of the bad things that the Royals have not gotten off to. Like, it's one thing to do it when the 2016-2017 teams where you're coming off a World Series and... You have these guys like Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, although they did dish off Moustakis, but like Eric Hosmer, who you don't want to dish because you're so attached to. And looking back, you probably should have dished him and got some extra prospects out of that. Now, here's a move that I think would actually be interesting. It would be bringing Hosmer back to the Royals. It would involve ownership having to say, hey, we're willing to pay a pretty dollar. But here's why. it's not. It has nothing to do with the fact that I think Eric Hosmer makes sense for the Royals. But there was a report earlier this week that the San Diego Padres would be willing to throw in one of their top four prospects for a team to take on Eric Cosmer. So I don't say this to say that, you know, Eric Cosmer makes a lot of sense on the Royals. You have Carlos Santana. You have guys like Nick Prado who are in AAA. 
showing to be really well in the minors and you're going to want him to come up and have playing time. But beyond the Eric Hosmer whole leadership factor, which would be probably valuable in a clubhouse of a young team that you're trying to teach how to win, bringing on a top four prospect, essentially paying for one, would be a huge win. I mean, if you had, because that's the thing with with the Padres, it's not just a top four prospect from an organization with a down farm system. All four of the Padres' top prospects, and, and I don't know what it'll be now in terms of guys who have gone away in this Max Scherzer trade with the Padres, but if you get a top 50 prospect, which all four of the Padres guys are, the going rate for that on the open market, I don't know, might be $30, $40 million if they were just a free agent and an international signee. We've seen that before. Or like a player from overseas. You can basically pay for a top 50 prospect, and that all has all to do with ownership. Air Cosmers do a lot of money, but if ownership says, hey, we're willing to take on the money because we can get a player that could end up being an all-star out of this on a cheap contract for a lot of years of control with a prospect, it seems like it's very much worth it to me. David Lesky, who I talked to on Mondays about Rose Baseball Inside the Crown, actually addressed this, the question about Eric Cosmer. Now, this was before knowing about the Padres being willing to attach a prospect onto the deal. And at the time, it didn't make sense because of taking on the money just to bring on a former face. Here's what David had to say. You know, I, I thought all along, okay, the Royals are going to trade for Hosmer at some point. When, they, when he signed the deal with the Padres, this is three years ago, for whatever it was, four years ago. I thought this, this is a, they're going, to sign, they're going to trade for him at some point because the Padres are going to say we don't need him and the Royals are, don't have a first baseman coming through. I, I'm just counting our lucky star, all of our lucky stars that Nick Prado has emerged this year because if he hadn't, uh, Hosmer might already be a Royal. I mean, honestly, he might already be in Kansas City. Um, and, it, and it would kind of make some sense, actually, if they didn't have anybody to, to, to come up and play first base. But thankfully they do. I don't think it'll happen. Um, but I'm guessing that Holland will give up his 35 when it does. But again, that was before the Padres or the report came out that the Padres would be willing to put on one of their top four prospects into the deal. So. That changes things drastically given the fact that you can basically say, hey, I am buying one of the top 50 prospects in the MLB from you. I think it would make a lot of sense. The Hosmer thing doesn't make a ton of sense on its own to the Royals, but given what it can net you, I think now I probably would do that if I was Kansas City, and I would hope that they're probably going to sell guys like Danny Duffy. I'm less inclined that you should have to sell Whit Merrifield. That was more of an example I was saying earlier, but if you do, I think... I don't think it would be the the dumbest thing in the world. But, like, you have to sell Scott Barlow, possibly. You have to sell Jorge Soler just because he's starting to heat up. Doesn't mean you hold on to him. Sell him. Please, make the right move, Dayton Moore. And I think he's on the right first track by selling Danny Duffy, who's going to be a free agent at the end of the season. You get something for him. Again, players to be named later, so we'll have to wait and see exactly what the haul that the Royals are bringing back in this trade with the Dodgers. But it's the right first step because Danny Duffy – is probably not going to be a big part of the next playoff team that you have, which could be a couple of years from now. We'll just wait to see if Danny Duffy is only going to be dipping his toes in the pool or if he's going to do a full cannonball or maybe just a normal entrance into the pool. What he does, I think it'd be better if you fully submerge yourself in the pool. Maybe not a full cannonball, but we'll see if this is just the toe dipping or not.
FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk.